This episode is brought to you by a brand new sponsor of the show, Picmonic. Picmonic is an audiovisual learning system with unforgettable stories and characters to help you remember everything you need to know for PT school and beyond. Used by over 1.5 million students all over the world, Picmonic is perfect for streamlining your studying in an efficient manner. Listeners of the show can use the promo code SNACKBREAK in all caps for a 20% discount, and first-time users can start today for free. Getting access to one learning objective and one Picmonic quiz per day, forever, at zero cost. Available on iOS, Android, and desktop. Once again, listeners of the show can use the promo code SNACKBREAK in all caps at checkout. Happy studying, and let's get right into the show. Hey everyone, thanks so much for tuning in. I'm your host, John Schaefer, and on this 10th episode of Snack Break, the first episode of 2022, I interview Dr. Brian Gusky and Dr. Tim Reynolds, the authors of Movers and Mentors, Leaders in Movement Science, share tips, tactics, and stories. I had an awesome time chatting with these guys, and basically what they've done is over the past two years, they've compiled 75 interviews with some of the top professionals within the field of physical therapy. So when we're thinking about these individuals, think about like Stephanie Bell, Tim Flynn, Chad Cook, Shirley Sarman, Jim Hefner, and the list goes on and on. And what they did in all these interviews is they asked the same nine questions, questions that they had or wish that they had answers to when they were going through physical therapy school or early on in their careers, even later on in their careers, anyone who wants a little bit of more a little bit more mentorship this book is absolutely perfect my favorite part about this book is that you can pick it up and read a page or two at a time learn someone's story and the tips and tools that they suggest to obtain success within the field of physical therapy and movement science so this was a really fun conversation i had with Brian and Tim outside of the contents of the book we talk about the process of writing a book for anyone um, within the field of physical therapy who might be interested in publishing a book at some point in time. And we also talk about Tim's role as an anatomy and physiology professor. So kind of how he's, tra- how he's transitioned from doing a lot of treatment in clinic to taking on more or a higher role in academia. And then we also talk about Brian who recently obtained his MBA and how that's affected his practice and his, uh, his insight and outlook on physical therapy as a whole. So again, really fun conversation, and I think that you're going to get a lot out of it, especially in terms of learning some more about mentorship. So enjoy the episode, and if you feel like you obtain any value from it, I'd really appreciate if you give me a five-star rating on Spotify, or if you leave a review on Apple Music, it helps get this podcast out to more students and clinicians. Thank you so much, and enjoy the episode. You know, John, if you could snap your fingers and produce one outcome working together in the next 90 days, what would it be and how would it change your life? And then from there, it sort of just, um, yeah, snowballed a bit. Physio is very much um, based on education. So Um, admin work, a little bit of everything. So changing things up every day is nice. You know, you should explore a lot of different ideas. People, but just anything that you do, you should enjoy it and embracing the speed bumps because that's kind of what's going to take you along your journey so and so i think when you put those cards down you're like i've done my best and at the end of the day if you can say i put 110 percent into this i know it's not perfect but it's my 110 percent it's always good to see like one day at a time just putting a little bit of value into the world and uh you know seeing what comes back to you and, you know it adds up over time and uh 
I got the best job in the world, man. It's amazing. <laughs> All right. Welcome to another episode of Snack Break by Ortho Snacks. I'm your host, John Schaefer. And on this podcast, I interview physical therapists, fitness professionals, and health and wellness experts. My guest today, for the first time ever, we've got a dynamic duo. We've got Dr. Brian Gusky and Dr. Tim Reynolds. Both are 2014 graduates of Ithaca College and are residency trained at Kayaka Medical Center. And they're both board certified in orthopedics, both certified strength and conditioning specialists. Um, Brian recently obtained his MBA. Congratulations, Brian. And Tim is an anatomy and physiology professor at his alma mater. So thank you guys so much for coming on the show. I know you're kind of making the podcast circuit right now, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Thanks for having us. John, thanks for having us. Yeah, so I would like to kind of start our conversation by talking a little bit about um, when you guys met. Like, did you ever see yourselves in that first year of PT school, eventually going on to become great friends or even write a book together? Uh, Tim and I were definitely close uh, throughout school. So we were always, you know, hanging out and coming up with kind of some crazy ideas, both in mm-hmm. and outside of the, the PT space. Um, and I think just, you know, both being in uh, residency together after graduation really brought us that much closer. I was sleeping on uh, Tim's floor, literally, uh, for, for weekend courses uh, when I would, I was living in Utica at the time, uh, uh-huh. working in a private practice and I'd, I'd head out to Ithaca for our weekend courses. And so Tim and I would bunk up, or I said, I'd bunk up with him and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and bring my blow up, uh, mattress. And so we just kind of got, got pretty close, uh, throughout that year and I've remained close since. Yeah, no, I think, uh, I mean, think back to PT school, our last year of our doctorate program, Brian and I were part of a project where we were taking a look at uh, throwing analysis with youth baseball, baseball players. And so we did a bunch of, um, of work there, obviously close throughout the, the didactic coursework of Ithaca's program. And then I think post-residency, that's when everything sort of really kicked off um, when we were sort of struggling together, learning all these uh, CPGs and manual techniques for a 12-month program. And then um, fortunate enough to have the opportunity to stay close since then. So. Yeah. So in your residency search, was that something you ever got, you guys ever saw happening? Was it going to the same residency program? Um, not really. No, I applied for a few different programs. I applied mm-hmm. to one out in California. I applied to one in Florida, um, a couple in New York and Ithaca just given what was going on in my life at the time seemed to be, um, mm-hmm. the best fit, or I should say Cayuga Medical Center. And they were also starting an external residency program. So I would be able to get all of the, the benefits of going through um, the Kyrgyz Medical Center uh, residency, which, was, which is very strong on a very well-run um, program. At the time, it was Mike Costello, who's both a mentor of Tim and I, who was uh, running it. And uh, he was starting this external program so I could live and work uh, in Utica, but then still get all the benefits of going out for the weekend courses and the mentorship mm-hmm. and all, all those pieces. So, uh, Tim was going to let him speak for his plan, but he ended up staying in, in Ithaca. Uh, and so it just kind of, I don't know, naturally just, uh, just worked out that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I took a little different approach. I think it was, uh, KU medical centers program was the only, uh, residency I applied to. Um, it was either go back home and be a sort of a managerial route to become a clinic director um, at like my home PT clinic that I uh, sort of was a PT aide at for years, 
four, um, do residency, and then start to see where life took me from there. So applied mm -hmm. for Cayuga's program, was fortunate enough to be a, uh, the internal resident, um, which allowed me to work directly at the facility. And um, like Brian said, have the benefit of the didactic courses for 12 months. Um, but that also opened up other doors to teaching and then eventually uh, getting hired full time at uh, Cayuga Medical and sort of staying stuck in Ithaca. Nice. So were the crazy ideas still flowing throughout residency or did you feel like you had less time to kind of focus on the other things? And it was more important to kind of nail down the uh, clinical knowledge and things like that. Um, I think every now and then I think you get to a point in a weekend course when you're there for like 16 hours. That by the end, <laughs> your brain just starts like wandering and you just kind of mm -hmm. start looking for different ways to distract yourself a little bit. Um, so I think even throughout then we were like pitching just random ideas to one another. And obviously the book that we, we mm. just uh, put out, um, was one of the, the products of, you know, the tail end of one of those courses with me just kind of throwing something out to Tim. Um, but yeah, no, we had, we had different ideas flowing, I think throughout, I don't know if Tim's recollection is, is the same, but yeah. Yeah, no, I would agree. I think there's only so much, um, neck and back pain that you can sit through in a two day course <laughs> and then probably buy that. 4:30 p.m. on Sunday, you're really starting to get a little bit, uh, a little bit crazy. And so, um, like Brian yeah. said, um, of the ideas that were pitched throughout throughout the year, uh, <laughs> movers and mentors is probably the one that stuck. So, <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, I I can definitely relate to that, just in terms of having a bunch of different ideas flowing through my head, and not necessarily ever knowing like what to commit more time to. Um, mm -hmm. Do you guys have any advice for someone in that situation? Like, where do you put, where do you put in all your efforts to make sure that you're finding a winner? Is it more like dispersing your efforts across the board and seeing what sticks? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I just, I'm reading a book right now. Uh, it's called change makers. I mentioned mm -hmm. it actually in another pod, podcast that we did. Um, it's by John Berardi. Uh, he's a, the found one of the founders of precision nutrition, which um, is a pretty popular um, mm -hmm. kind of holistic uh, nutrition counseling and coaching service or company. Um, and he talks about going through this process for prioritization of like essentially making yourself a bracket, like a basketball bracket, uh, so and like writing, writing down your ideas or things that you need to get done, your tasks, and using that as kind of a way to triage, well, what, what should I be working on now? Um, if it's like, you know, a, a new product or service line idea, uh, I think that gets a little bit more complex or complicated because you need to look at, well, what's the, you know, what's the return on this investment? How much time is this going to take? You know, who's, you know, who do I have along with me working on this thing? Uh, that gets a little bit more complicated, but if you're just prioritizing tasks or items on like a to-do list, drawing yourself a bracket can be helpful. Okay. Yeah. I, I think sort of continue with that idea. Um, I think you can take a look at it from multiple different lenses. Um, one is from a feasibility standpoint. Um, I think we all have lofty goals. And I think that there's this idea of having too many hats on and then you're having uh, 16 half finished projects that don't necessarily ever um, get completed. And so I think as you're making that sort of to-do list, um, I'm a big fan of writing down the goal and then what are the five action steps below that goal and how can I make a strive to sort of pursue one of those today, which will help me in the, all, uh, in the long term, sort of complete that big task. At the end of the day, also, I think it turns into what can I get done fastest? So I actually feel like I'm making some positive gains. Um, Brian and I are sitting on a research article that we worked on for uh, <laughs> uh, 
for Dude, residency. You really want to admit this then? Oh yeah, man. I mean, I think it's like real life stuff. Like I'm sitting on data from like 2015, 2016, and uh, I, I sort of like cycle it through every six months or so. And so my goal for 2022 is um, this is going to get published, but it's like one of those things that uh, there's a lot of action steps I have to take uh, into effect in order for that to happen. But I think what can get done the soonest, but also like I was talking about that bracket component of what are the action steps needed to be able to accomplish that task? Yeah, I really like that, guys. That's uh, Those are both actionable items that people can actually take and implement into their lives. I think that all too often when you ask for advice on things like this, it's come up with to-do lists and things like that. You just get general advice and not necessarily specific, um, these specific proven methods that work for you guys. So that's awesome. And I think something else that's beneficial too, or at least has been for me, is do something every day where you see short-term progress um, that you can see immediate results and then also contribute to something um, that's going to give you long-term progress down the road. So definitely, definitely some good advice that I will try and incorporate in my life. Um, so obviously you guys ended up deciding the idea you were going to go with was the book. And just hearing kind of your story on some other podcasts, it seems like kind of the driving factor was you noticed all these big names coming up during your residency in different books, the research you're reading, these names continue to come up time and time again. So what did you guys do with that information, um, knowing that you were seeing these names over and over again? Um, yeah, so we essentially compiled a, uh, you know, kind of dream team list, if you will, of people that if we had the opportunity to sit down and, and talk with them or, you know, have uh, several email exchanges with them, you know, who would be on that list? Um, and then the second part of that is, well, what types of questions would we want to ask them? So that's really kind of the, the, the two parts is deciding who and then deciding essentially the, the what, you know, what do we want to ask? Mm-hmm. And so I guess just to kind of follow up on that, how did you decide, um, how did you narrow down that question list or how long did it take to kind of hone in what information you wanted from these people? Yeah, I think, I mean, it, we were both sort of uh, reading a book at the time um, by Tim Ferriss. So mm-hmm. um, really cool book it has the opportunity to interview um, a variety of different movers and shakers in multiple industries. So like Arnold Schwarzenegger, Oprah Winfrey. And um, so sort of modeling the book based off of some of Tim Ferriss' questions, but also taking some civil liberty to know who is our audience. Because at the time, we were the audience that we were making this book for. Um, we were new graduates uh, from residency program. We're young professionals. We graduated from physical therapy school, which means that we know a lot about a lot of things and are not confident in treating patients on our own, right? So it's like, um, I remember being a week away from graduating my doctorate and still trying to figure out how to fix people with back pain. You're just throwing a bunch of different exercises at them. And you yeah. just did not feel confident and you're sort of... Um, inundated with imposter syndrome and all this other stuff at the time. And so um, I think we developed a list of questions and Brian sort of spearheaded that um, to try to figure out what would be valuable for individuals like ourselves and kids that are currently trying to navigate their way through PT school. So things like what would be uh, good advice that you would provide a young graduate would be bad advice. What are bad recommendations that you hear in your area of specialty? Because we interviewed a relatively wide net um, of, of clinicians ranging from orthopedics to, um, to neurological, to pain science, to 
pelvic floor specialists. And so we wanted to know within those different niches, what are bad recommendations that they typically hear? Mm-hmm. And then sort of continuing on from that, sort of, sort of good life advice stuff, like the concepts regarding failure. What's your favorite failure? What did you learn from that failure? Um, and I think having the opportunity to normalize failure amongst a cohort or a group of students that typically are type A personalities that do not like to fail um, is really valuable. And other things like favorite books to um, some of their uh, best investments and stuff like that. So it, w- it was a fun list of questions to ask because they're the, the answers to those questions you will not find in a research paper and you will not typically find on a social media post. Um, and I think that was one of the most exciting things about the project. Yeah, I'd actually, I'd actually read um, Tim Ferriss' book, Tools of Titans. And before I had listened to your other podcasts and known that it was framed off that I was like, this is, this is an oddly familiar setup and it's a good one too. It's effective in that, you know, you can take it, pick it up, read it in the morning, get one person's story and then pick it up the next day. It's not something you have to exactly. crush all at once. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I think makes so. <clears throat> that's what I think makes it so valuable. So I guess just in determining the types of people you wanted to interview, obviously there's so many different individuals you could have grabbed from. Um, and this question, it's not necessarily about why you chose the people you chose. It's more what qualities make up a great mentor um, and kind of how did that lead you to some of these individuals? Like, did you have any set criteria? Um, we didn't have, we, Tim and I joke about this. Like we wish we could have developed some, like robust Excel sheet that had, you know, X amount of columns on there, 10 columns and, you know, go through each name and say, oh, they have produced this much research or this many publications. Oh, they've mentored this many students. And obviously the feasibility of that was, is, you know, very, very challenging for, you know, the, the time constraints and other things that yeah. Tim and I have going on. So, so it was kind of more so doing some research asking people um, and asking some of our guests that we, you know, we're close to or that we um, have talked to in the past, you know, so we're going to interview, you know, you for the book, but you know, who would you recommend we speak to? And then once they Mm -hmm. give us a few names going and diving into those names and trying to understand what they've done or what they currently do. And as Tim kind of alluded to trying to cast um, a pretty, a pretty wide net um, and have various different specialties or whether it's business, um, uh, business leaders, researchers, uh, expert clinicians, um, you know, kind of pick, picking for many different areas within the, the rehab or PT space. Um, in terms of uh, good qualities of a mentor, um, I really think a lot of times a good me- with a good mentor, it's kind of a two-way street. Like you're, you're sharing things with them and you're helping them get better as a mentor. And then obviously the more common relationship that, you know, we're familiar with is the mentor kind of teaching you things, but I I really think it's kind of a, it's kind of a give and take. And Simon Sinek has a a good uh, interview about that actually, where his mentor, he thanked his mentor after like years of coaching him on various things. And, um, you know, his mentor turns around and says, Sinek or Simon, thanks for being my mentor. And so I, I always thought that, that was really, really interesting. I like the way he framed it. Um, so I think uh, it's definitely a give and take, but a mentor is really somebody that is doing, in my mind, kind of doing the thing that you want to be doing um, and is willing to kind of take you under their wing, sort of, and, um, and kind of show you the ropes, if you will, and, you know, help you understand that there's going to be bumps in the road and failures along the way. But 
steer you away from those failures because they've already encountered them. And obviously a good mentor isn't going to want you to, to, to fail so, so bad that it puts you in a bad spot. So I think just having their experience and having their guidance um, and wisdom is, is really powerful. And then again, it goes, it kind of goes both ways. Sure. Anything to add to him? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the benefits of residency training, um, or at least the residency that Brian and I completed was that we had the opportunity to be mentored quote unquote by give or take eight to 10 clinicians, um, sort of periodically throughout the whole experience. And so I think back and reflect on who was a valuable mentor during that opportunity. It was the one that didn't teach you everything because there was some level of struggling in order to have self-growth and self-development. Because if a mentor just provides you with the answers to everything, then there's no opportunity for you to navigate uh, around those small speed bumps, if you would. And so I think like Brian was talking about someone that's willing to teach you, but that opportunity to give back and ask questions and then challenge their learning, I think is also a really valuable component. It should not be just a one-way stream of consciousness into you. And so I think um, sort of piggybacking off what Brian was saying with that, I think that is a valuable aspect to it. Um, And sort of continue with Brian's idea of modeling that individual. I think one of the benefits of the book was that there's over 75 individuals who we have the opportunity to ask questions to so that you can create your own mentor, if you would, um, because not every, not every clinician in here is going to speak to every one of our readers, right? There's going to be individuals that say, I really want to go into private practice versus the individual that says, I want to be my own sole proprietor, right? I want to start my own company. And so your thoughts and opinions or your research background does not speak to me, but that opportunity to take the different components of that mentorship, if you would, and then create this sort of master, uh, master mold of mentee uh, learning opportunities is sort of one of the benefits and one of the goals that we had with this book project. But I think that's the same concept with, with regards to good mentorship also, like having the opportunity to say, I really appreciate the fact that you are a, a punctual, good uh, you communicate well with your patients. They, they always come back. They request you. Um, I really appreciate your hands-on skills, right? So you, you figure out what do I want to develop myself as, as a clinician and then reach out to those individuals. And I think that's one of the biggest things that this project also showed us was the willingness that our profession has to want to help other people within our profession. And so ask the questions to the mentors that you want to receive, right? So you can kick somebody an email, you can send them a message on Instagram, you can reach out to them on their website. And there's a pretty good chance that there's going to be an answer to that question that you have. So sort of asking the questions to the individuals who you want to model because they're most likely going to be willing to provide some level of support. Yeah. And that's something I think that I've been a little bit surprised with too. And just doing some of these interviews is for the most part, my success rate in getting people to talk to me has been pretty high. Um, I mean, and I think that, once you reach a certain level of success, you realize you haven't gotten there by yourself um, and you want to get back to, you want to get back to the profession and those looking to do some more things that you're doing. So I think that it's definitely prevalent within the profession as well, which is great. Um, I did have a question about, so you mentioned that you guys kind of wrote the book for yourselves initially um, and that you were seeking out mentorship. I'm just curious kind of how that lines up with residency training. Cause you would think someone who's, you know, resident 
in the middle of residency training, he's getting a lot of mentorship. Um, was there any disconnect between those two? Um, so Tim and I, we came up with the idea uh, while we were in residency. Like, mm-hmm. as Tim said, we were both reading that book, um, Tools of Titans by Tim Ferriss. And I basically said, like, this is a great idea for a book. Like, he's interviewing Tony Robbins and, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like, it would be great if we could apply this. To, to our profession or if there was a book out there like this in our profession and then we kind of mm-hmm. kicked it around for a bit and it actually went a couple of years um three years until we started writing it and at the time when we started writing it tim and i um yeah we were i mean personally and i think you know we both were also seeking out mentorship for kind of other professional growth areas but we mm-hmm. were tim was starting to teach and i was i stepped into a residency director role so we were getting asked a lot of questions from residents from students um you know it, it kind of within the context of of the questions that we asked our guests so we, we kind of looked at one another and we're saying man i'm getting a lot of questions about x y and z and tim's like yeah i kind of get those questions too and then we it kind of came full circle where we were like well what if we asked like our leaders and you know leaders within the profession and some of our mentors and uh those types of questions so that's where it kind of came came full full circle we were seeking out mentorship um, but to a greater degree, we were like, we're getting asked a lot of questions. I wonder what so-and-so would say about this. Cause I'm certainly, you know, with five years of practice under my belt, not an expert in, you know, the professional track and decisions with regards to that, but Tim Flynn, you know, might be, or, or Shirley Sarman might be. So let's reach out to them. Yeah. So it sounds more like you guys were receiving some great mentorship already, but just kind of sharing the wealth and um, mm. providing an even greater resource. Um, you guys touched on this a little bit earlier, but just the, the feeling of imposter syndrome coming out, coming out of graduation, just before graduation, how did you guys personally deal with that? Maybe we can start with Tim. Yeah. I mean, I think that's something that I still deal with today. And I think, Mm -hmm. um, I think understanding and normalizing, and I've, I've mentioned this before, um, to other individuals, understanding that failure is normal. Failure is Okay failure is a growth opportunity. Imposter syndrome is normal. Imposter syndrome is okay. And imposter syndrome is an opportunity for growth and expansion of yourself also. Um, I've heard Brian say a couple of times the idea that if you reach a point in time where you've sort of uh, eliminated the imposter syndrome, then you're probably not challenging yourself enough, right? I think like that idea that if you are in a state and think about, um, So John, you have your CSCS, right? So you work with individuals, understand the strength and conditioning philosophies, but like if you're never overloading an individual, right? If you're never trying to reach adaptation, then you're just going to continue to plateau. And so I think that we we have to optimize ourselves and sort of flirt with that boundary point of this is beyond my scope and my capabilities because that's where true growth and opportunity has the opportunity to flourish. And so I look at, um, most recent imposter syndrome was this entire semester, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, I do not have a PhD. I do not have a DSC. I'm a clinical doctorate in physical therapy. I am not by any means a physiology expert. I think my anatomy knowledge is pretty solid, right? Um, but I walked into this situation sort of taking on this anatomy physiology um, role at Ithaca College where I'm teaching 180 students and I'm like the dude, Right. And so, uh, so this whole semester was, but I'm not as smart as 
Tom Swenson, I'm not as smart as Chuck Saccone. How do I walk in their shoes? And I think what that provided me the opportunity to do was, okay, well, what can you do? Control the controllables, right? And I think if I had to talk to students today about imposter syndrome, that'd be one of my big, big points. After normalizing it, what do I have the capacity to control? I could control the amount of time that I put into my prep work. I could put in, control the amount of time that I put into my studying for the lecture. I could control um, the assignments and all these other aspects of the course itself. And so I think when you put those cards down, you're like, I've done my best. And at the end of the day, if you can say, I put 110% into this, I know it's not perfect, but it's my 110%. Mm-hmm. That's where you have the opportunity to accept that imposter and say, this is a growth opportunity. Um, versus having that be uh, a source of a negative stressor where you feel like you are actually being uh, drowned, if you would, um, by that imposter syndrome. Okay. Yeah, I like that a lot. Do you have anything to add, Brian? Yeah, I think Tim definitely hit the the main points on that. We've had discussions, um, Mm -hmm. you know, side discussions about this. I I think if if you don't have some level of imposter syndrome, either you're very arrogant, right? And you, you do, you kind of think you know it all, um, which isn't right. Uh, or you're not being challenged enough, um, which, you know, depending on your career goals or professional goals or personal things, uh, I, you know, probably isn't right either. You know, if, you're, if your goal is to um, do better and, and learn more and, and um, you know, serve better. So uh, I think those are the, the major points. Some level of it is healthy because it acts as a kind of a fire, right? It's mm-hmm. going to, if you have that, um, if you have, you know, some kind of view that, man, I don't belong in this position. Um, you know, I'm not smart enough to be here. I don't have enough experience. Uh, that's going to cause you uh, to want to learn more and seek out more information and ultimately do better. Absolutely. Um, so I, I think, uh, I think some level of it is definitely healthy. Mm-hmm. That is, that's some great insight. Um, the next thing I want to do is, so a lot of times on my podcast episodes, <clears throat> I like to provide my guests an opportunity to get an idea of how an individual got where they are currently. So I'm going to ask you guys a couple of questions just about the process of kind of writing a book for someone who's interested um, in doing so. And then I'm going to ask uh, both Brian and Tim separate questions regarding kind of their current journey. So just in terms of actually putting the book together, taking it from idea to getting it on paper, uh, what were some of the biggest challenges you guys faced? Um, I think compiling the data, if you will, was definitely just a logistical and operational hurdle. You know, Tim and I are mm-hmm. sending out, uh, we sent out over probably a hundred and I don't know what, Tim, 150 emails um, just at the outset. And then you're getting response on all those emails. Well, some of them. Um, and then you're, you're, you know, going back and forth and then you're setting up, um, interviews, you know, recording those interviews, I'm jumping way ahead of myself, but either way, I think just like getting all the data together and then keeping it organized in one place, which, you know, shameless plug for Google docs here, we use Google docs and, um, it compiled everything. And, um, and then we just kind of dumped everything into that. And then we'd go back in our downtime and then clean it up and, and kind of turned it into a you know ver- version one of a manuscript that ended up having probably I don't know twenty versions. So mm-hmm. it was uh, that was definitely a, a hurdle at the at the beginning. Um, you know how we structured the book, doing the interviews. Um, that's a lot of uh, transcription time. 
So transcribing mm -hmm. the, the interviews after recording them, um, a one hour interview would take us five hours probably to transcribe. Um, so that was, a, that was a lot of time. Um, and then I think at that point, once we had the, the kind of raw, you know, manuscript and it was, um, in a presentable format, then we had to uh, seek out a copy editor, which we used some connections that Tim had at Ithaca, got that, um, got that completed. Um, and then even after the copy editor went through normally books that get published have three, four five copy editors going through the manuscript. Mm -hmm. We had one copy editor go through it maybe once or twice uh so then tim and i had to come back in and clean it up and massage it even more so uh -huh. it was a lot of it was definitely a lot of steps to get it to the the product that it's it's at today and to get it as you know clean and hopefully polished as uh as as we think it is at least um so tim can i don't know fill in any anything i left off there any other hurdles that jump out yeah i mean obviously the depending on the type of book that you're trying to write, there's a variety of different steps. One of the, uh, I guess, benefits of our book was that we were accumulating all the, the pages, the words from other individuals. We just put them on, on paper, right? And so that idea that Brian was talking about, yeah, like transcribing a hour and a half interview. Like I think uh, Kelly Starrett was one of our guests and Kelly was an awesome interview. Um, real energetic dude, a uh, lot of awesome information. Mm -hmm. I think I talked to Kelly Starrett for about an hour and 30, 35 minutes or so. And then you have to listen to that mm -hmm. one sentence at a time, press pause, write down that sentence, and then go back and forth and back and forth. And when you do that 60, 70 times, that turns into a lot of man hours. And that's not even necessarily a polished product like Brian was talking about. So I think, um, Moving forward, if, if um, for someone trying to write a book in general, I think build your team. I think that's a really important concept of these are the individuals who are going to read my drafts, right? Like Brian said, we did a lot of work ourselves. We had some family members help with this. We had the opportunity to have um, some outside sources also take a look at this, but have a really solid support team and have them know their role within that team um, mm -hmm. because it does take a team and uh, a, uh, what is it? It takes a, a tribe, if you would, in order to get this whole project to, to occur. And so um, that would be one of them. And I think uh, probably our biggest fault uh, would be uh, reach out to your individual who's actually going to put the book together um, once you actually have a finished product. Because uh, I think we reached out to our individual who's going to actually put uh, uh, the formatting of everything. We reached out to them about four and a half, five months too early. And so all the different iterations that we had to send back and forth to, uh, oh, to them, boy. they probably got a little frustrated uh, by the end of the project, but yeah, we, learned from <laughs> we are very thankful for our, our book designer. Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> so just with all those hurdles and things like that, was there any, was there a time where you didn't think the book was going to come together um, or was it more just keep your head down, keep going and eventually it's going to turn out? Uh, I think we got so far along and every time we hit a point like that, that, you know, there'd be a week or two weeks where we wouldn't, wouldn't make any progress on it. We thought about mm -hmm. like all of the people that we interviewed and the time that the uh, people that wanted to email their answers, like the time that they took to um, write everything out. We were like, we can't drop the ball now. Like we've come too far. And at that, uh -huh. when we were hitting those blocks, 
um you know it was later on in the process it was like the formatting and the reading and the trans transcribing when we would hit those blocks um because when we were getting the the responses and actually doing the live interviews like that's exciting stuff every time you know you got an email back from Stu mcgill or um or you know john childs like you get really excited about that like let's wow, go. I actually want to contribute let's go <laughs> um so that was like kind of um you know seeing seeing progress and uh pushing us along but yeah we, when we hit those blocks we'd say man yeah this 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 sucks i really don't feel like doing this tonight you know i want to go yeah. to bed but you cannot you know, we, we thought we couldn't drop the ball now. Yeah. Sort of continue with that. I mean, there was a lot of responsibility that we had based on the fact that we took up a lot of people's time. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. I think when you think about um, 75 interviews, those individuals either sat down to compose their answers or they met with us. Um, and so we had that level of responsibility. And in addition, Brian and I had each other to sort of keep each other accountable too, right? I mean, it's like one of those things that like, hey, like I can't let you down because my job was to transcribe this interview to put it into the manuscript by tomorrow. And so I think we held each other accountable throughout this entire process. We probably wanted to chew each other's heads off at times, but um, we, we have, uh, uh, we balance each other out, pretty good dichotomy of a teamwork, uh, which is really solid. Um, but I think, um, when I look back and reflect on it, it was never, is this, I don't think this is going to happen. It's when is this actually going to happen? The time frame was the biggest question. Is this going to be a three-year project? Or are we actually going to finish this in 2021? Um, and so I think that was probably my biggest question that I had about the completion of the book. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and just kind of going off that too, I'm wondering, what did your schedule kind of look like in terms of how much you were going to write on a given day? I know a lot of it depends on, you know, response rate when people are getting back to you with what information did you have yeah. any kind of a schedule you could stick to? So you have to think back to what was the world doing when we first started this project, right? So we mm -hmm. got our first, uh, first response was in September, 2019. Right. Um, so that's when we were sending out emails. And that was when we first got uh, some responses back. And so uh, the world kind of kind of hit a curveball and then swung and missed a couple of times in March of 2021 or 2020. And uh, so from a clinic standpoint, my clinic hours were significantly reduced. Um, and that did free up a lot of time for uh, transcribing and conducting interviews. Um, I was also teaching at the time. And so with a cutback in my clinical hours and uh, teaching remotely, um, I had all the time in the world to write a book. And so uh, it's amazing how hindsight and sort of how these big negatives in your life at the time can actually find some pauses from it. Mm -hmm. The pandemic really opened up an opportunity for Brian and I to complete this project by October of this past year. So everything works out. Yeah. <laughs> um, Go, go ahead if you have anything to add, Brian. No, no. It was the, yeah, we found time for our schedules to align because, uh, you know, everyone got really comfortable doing things virtually. And so Tim and I would have a lot of virtual meetings and work through stuff and yeah, basically found time on, on weekends or afternoons when you would normally be like going out doing stuff that, you know, we weren't, <laughs> we weren't going out and doing stuff. <laughs> yeah. uh, so now I want to dive into each of your journeys individually a little bit. Um, so Brian, you got your MBA this past year. So can you kind of take me through the thought process um, in, in obtaining the MBA and kind of what uh, added benefit that has for you now? 
Yeah. Yeah. So I, I started getting interested in um, learning a little bit more about business and the business of healthcare mm-hmm. um, after I had been practicing for um, three years. Uh, I went back, uh, so I worked for the University of Rochester Medical Center, um, and as being a, an employee by the medical center, um, were offered some tuition reimbursement for any coursework at uh, the university. Uh, so I went back to Simon Business School um, and entered a master's in medical management program, which is a, an 18-month program um, that taught me a lot about kind of the, the finance side of hospitals, um, mm-hmm. a little bit about organizational like hierarchy, a little bit on marketing, but mostly about, you know, the accounting and finance um, and kind of the business, essentially the, the economics of, of healthcare and hospitals. And that, um, that was interesting. I liked that. It was very fast. It was, it was pretty intense. Um, I, I felt like also at that time I had stepped into the residency director role and I was very committed mm-hmm. and very consumed by that. So I didn't really pull out uh, as much out of the medical management program as I would have liked. Mm-hmm. So um, that program actually fulfilled about 50% uh, of the MBA program. Uh, so I said, I'll go back and I'll finish the MBA about a year later. So I started that in, in 2018, I believe, or 2019. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I completed the MBA program uh, just uh, earlier, earlier this year. Um, so I, I think it's helped me understand a little bit more about um, consumer behavior and economics behind um, healthcare, uh, but also just medicine in general. So even though you know we're obviously helping people and, and helping people feel better, move better, and live better lives, you know patients are consumers. They have choices, um, and they have a choice to decide whether they're going to see PTA or PTB or go to A location versus B location. Um, so what is, you know, what are the decision, um, uh, factors behind that and what is their reasoning and, you know, is it really the satisfaction? Is it outcome? Is it patient experience? Um, and I think the answer is all of those things, but some way heavily, more heavily than others. And, you know, how do you leverage that with regards to the, the economics and, um, and, you know, kind of different things behind, you know, productivities and, and whatnot. Um, that was, you know, part of my, my education as well. Um, so yeah, I'd say it's helped me think a little bit differently about my role as a physical therapist. Um, it's helped me look at healthcare through the lens of a patient and a consumer, um, a little bit better. Uh, and it's also just helped me understand businesses. Like I, you know, I couldn't tell you what a the sole proprietorship or a LLC was, you know, before going back to business school, but you come out knowing those things. So that's helpful as well. And you can, when you're reading things or hearing about things, you just kind of understand it a little bit better. Okay. And then another question I have for you is just about your role when you were a residency director, kind of how did you find that position? What was it like? Um, yeah. How, how do you step into that role from being a moving from physical therapist to more of an administrative role within a residency? Yeah. Uh, so I started by taking on a coordinator role as a spine team coordinator so we have uh, 20 therapists that, um, 15 to 20 therapists that kind of focus and specialize in seeing um, spine problems. Uh, and so we have a coordinator for that team, um, as well as, you know, we have a foot and ankle team, a shoulder team, a bunch of teams. Uh, and I stepped into the spine coordinator t- uh, role. And then um, the orthopedic residency director role opened up. Uh, shortly after I stepped into that role. So I also uh, jumped onto that role. So then I had, I was working on 
um, doing essentially both roles, but it was, there was a lot of overlap, obviously orthopedic residencies um, focus a lot on, on spine impairments and spine problems. So it was just kind of a, a happy marriage of the two roles. Um, so that's how I kind of got it, got into it. Um, and it was, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. I, um, I came out of my residency program knowing a lot, having a lot of new information and all I want to do is like share that stuff with, mm -hmm. with P other PTs and, you know, oftentimes younger PTs and graduates. Um, and so it's very, very fulfilling. Awesome. Kind of a trend I'm hearing between the both of you is just a natural progression of everything seeming to work out <laughs> in the best possible way. So <laughs> kudos to you guys. Um, yeah, don't, don't give it, don't get us wrong. There, there's definitely been a few, a few <laughs> hurdles there and failures. One failure, I'll just, this will be the last thing I mentioned. I, oh, I went absolutely. through that medical, that medical management program in order to get a, um, a site manager position because I wanted to move uh -huh. up in administration. Uh, and I interviewed for that role uh, right after I finished the medical management program. Like, hey, I'm done. I'm ready. Like, let's go. It's game time. Put me in coach. Mm -hmm. And I didn't get that role. Uh, and that was a big, um, you know, that was a kind of a reality check, uh, gut check. And, um, and that ultimately pushed me, one, to go back and get the MBA and uh, also pushed me to work on this project more with Tim. Mm -hmm. So you know, I, I'm a big believer in everything works out for the, for the best. I know you can poke holes in that. Um, and depending mm -hmm. on your philosophy or, you know, what, what have you, um, you, you know, you might not believe that, but I, I think things definitely work out for the best. You just got to stay positive and, and keep working. And yeah. One other thing I will add, just, we, we see the end product of where you guys are now, but there's so much work that goes in behind the scenes, so many failures that happen along the way. And it's just so important that, you know, you continue to move forward and give your best effort and then things like, kind of like you said, will end up working out in the end, hopefully. Um, so I had a couple of questions for Tim too. Um, Tim's enjoying many of the benefits of being a professor right now over his winter break. He's got most of the month of January off, but, uh, Tim, tell me a little bit about how you stepped into your role as a professor. Yeah. And I think this is sort of one of those things that within physical therapy, one of the, one of the blessings of the profession is the opportunity to cast your own career net wide, right? I think we graduate mm -hmm. with a doctorate in physical therapy, but that means you have the opportunity to become a clinic director. You, you can do teach, uh, you can teach continuing education courses. You can make podcasts, right? You can do social media marketing. You can do all these different things. And teaching in academia is one of those um, avenues that a lot of individuals at least try to dabble, uh, dabble with at some point in time. And um, during my residency program in the fall semester, I was asked to teach uh, anatomy physiology labs. And so um, I took a look at my schedule. I was treating patients uh, mostly full-time as per the residency requirements, taking residency courses. And I said, yeah, I could probably um, sleep less and teach more. And so, um, so I taught two, uh, two night labs um, as a resident. And that was my foot in the door, um, which eventually when I moved back to Ithaca, uh, took on a couple more labs and then started to teach exercise physiology and clinical physiology labs, started to do that more as a full-time gig in addition to treating patients full-time. And when a position opened up at Ithaca um, to be sort of the course coordinator for their anatomy physiology program, put my name in the hat um, with four years of um, clinic or teaching experience um, on top of all this clinical experience that I had, 
and uh, was fortunate enough to get the position. And so I think for those individuals who are trying to figure out and navigate this, uh, how do I get into academia realm? It turns into just <laughs> be willing to, uh, to participate in any way, shape or form to the mm-hmm. academic program that's close by. Send, send a course coordinator an email, say, hi, can, if you need anybody to guest speak, guest lecture, uh, come in and uh, t- help with some labs or, or take on some students. Um, however, you can provide a benefit to them um, mm-hmm. would probably be my introduction or recommendation, as long as you didn't want to go back and get your PhD or DSC. Okay, so is it? It's a situation where um, do you need a terminal degree to teach? Is that correct? So yeah, you so you, you need some level of right terminal degree to the individuals that you're teaching. So the anatomy physiology program that I teach right now, we have PTs, OTs, ATs, um, exercise science, uh, mm-hmm. medical focus with a strength conditioning focus, pre-med. Um, so all those individuals, I need to have the terminal degree um, of the individual that's going to be taking it. So uh, our PTs would be getting the DPT. So therefore I have okay, gotcha. background. Yeah. Um, and then, so what, what does it kind of look like in terms of balancing teaching versus clinical practice in terms of your typical week? Yeah, so it's uh, significantly better than it used to be because uh, I used to, uh, I was treating patients 40 hours a week and teaching um, 18 credits a semester. So um, so that used to be a lot of clinic time in the morning and then teaching until give or take 9.30 at night. And so um, thankfully, uh, I have the opportunity to teach twice a week um, in terms of lectures. I lecture on Tuesdays and Thursdays, um, and then I teach labs on Wednesday afternoons which allows for me to treat patients Monday mornings and Wednesday mornings. Um, there's, a, there's a blessing and a curse in academia. You have a lot more uh, time uh, in my perception. Granted, when you come from like two full-time jobs, one full-time job, you always have more time. But um, there's a lot of behind the scenes work that I think a lot of students may not necessarily um, understand that goes into lesson prepping, um, lecture prep, writing exams, creating um, content, grading. Um, so there's a lot of like busy work, but I do a lot of that busy work on my couch watching Netflix. So uh, so there's, there's a, a quality of life points uh, situation that gets boosted too. So Awesome. I think that definitely provides a little bit of insight into the teaching um, aspect of things. So just scratch the surface, but I think that's plenty for that. Um, so we'll go into a speed round now. Ask all my Guess at the end of the podcast, the same five questions. So you guys up for answering them? Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Sure. So the first question I have for you guys is what is your biggest key to a successful day? Uh, I'll go first. Is that, is that cool? Uh, for me, sweat or some form of exercise or movement. Okay, nice. Do I need to, you want me to, to expand on you, that? You can, you can elaborate. Going? You can elaborate oh, okay. on a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, I think it just sets me up. It's kind of my anchor for the day. Um, I think that it, it kind of puts me on a on the on the right path. Um, you know, it gives me it gives me an opportunity to wake up and kind of before jumping into thinking and working on a lot of different things, get out of my head a little bit and kind of just just move. Um, gets mm-hmm. a bunch of good endorphins flowing, and yeah, I think uh, it sets me on the right path for the day. What's the ideal workout time for you? Oh, you know, significantly shorter than it used to be. Uh, I used to be like a you know, 90 to two hour kind of guy in the gym. And I don't, uh, even to this day, I don't understand how I ever 
uh, did that, but you know, you have a little extra time when you're, when you're in school between classes and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, now it's probably an hour and 15 minutes, nice. um, six, 60 to 75 minutes, including warm up and a little mobility work at the end, I'd say. All right. How about you, Tim? Greatest key to a successful day? I think it's, uh, getting up early. Um, how early are I we think, talking? So I'm, uh, my alarm goes off at five. Um, okay. I'm, there's a pretty good chance that I, I beat my alarm just waking up. Um, unfortunately, my circadian rhythms sort of like smack me in the face every couple of days. Um, but I think uh, when I wake up early and get started on my day, those are my successful days. And usually that involves getting a workout in at 530. Um, so I'll try to roll out of bed, get dressed, prep for the day, and then work out until about 630, 645. And then that allows me to start treating patients around seven or so. Um, but having sort of checked that box and like Brian talked about from an endorphin release standpoint, just that sense of accomplishment, um, mm. sort of that idea from a mental standpoint of I got up and I sort of took today by the horns <laughs> versus uh, fighting that urge to just sleep an hour longer or um, roll back over after turning off your alarm. I think it gives you sort of that win for the day. Yeah. And I think having that time in the morning yourself too, while everyone else is still asleep is pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, Next question is, uh, is there any advice you wish someone would have given you five years ago that would significantly impact where you're at right now? Um, yeah, coming from a, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily inpatient, I'm willing to put in, put in work, but everything takes time. Um, and it, it takes time. You, you don't know uh, the things that you don't know. And, you know, oftentimes I think when I came out of school, I'm like, oh yeah, I want to, you know, open up my own, my own practice immediately, um, and start doing, you know, my own entrepreneurial thing. It's like, well, you haven't really gotten enough repetitions yet. You haven't seen enough patients to really understand patterns and do a good job with the patient in front of you. Uh, mm-hmm. and again, you can, there's lots of successful, um, PT, um, business and, and clinic owners that did that right out of school. Um, and kind of learned as they went, but I'm like, I need to get around people and quality mentors, quality clinicians so that I can understand the service and do a better job at the service before mm-hmm. I start my own service. So I think like everything takes time. You don't know what you don't know. Um, you got to learn those things before you take the next step. Awesome. Uh, I would say get comfortable with making yourself vulnerable. Um, and that can go on multiple different tiers, vulnerability from a, uh, taking on new tasks, asks vulnerability from an emotional standpoint um but I, I think back to like residency and that idea of like those days where you're being mentored and so you have a full day of mentorship and having someone else looking over your shoulder treating patients and how, how there are times when I was thankful that someone would have canceled because I was concerned about how I would perform treating that patient in front of my mentor but looking back on it, I was like man but those are the opportunities that you should have like And so like excited to have someone provide guidance. And so I think like Brian said, you don't know what you don't know, but understanding and embracing that vulnerability to allow for yourself to ask questions. It's okay that you don't know stuff because you don't have the experience yet, but um, put yourself and challenge yourself to be more, more vulnerable in all aspects of your life. Awesome. Next question I have for you guys is, is there any book or product other than your own um, that you've used over the last three months that has significantly impacted your life? 
Um, yeah, I would say I, I mentioned it earlier. Change Makers by John Berardi. Mm-hmm. I think the subtitle is how to turn your uh, passion for uh, health and fitness into a successful career. Um, it's a really great kind of blueprint on, you know, if you really uh, are passionate about health, fitness, wellness, you know, kind of lifestyle medicine, how do you turn, how do you actually take that, that passion and turn it into, um, you know, a, a business, whether that's a business just for yourself or growing that and scaling that like he did with mm-hmm. precision nutrition. That was a great book. Uh, I am, I've been working on blink for about 10 months now. Um, and I will, uh, get back to you once I finish that. Beauty calm. I like it. Um, Tim, how about you? Uh, from a product standpoint, super simple shame that it took me long enough to, to do this buying decent Tupperware. Um, okay. uh, I thought when you, when you asked that question, I was like, no, you know what actually influenced my life? Having like a whole set of Tupperware that I could meal prep for the entire week right then and not run out of Tupperware. That, uh, was probably one of the best, uh, purchases in the best three months. Okay. In terms of the book, uh, uh, Daring Greatly from Brene Brown. Um, I think that was a really good read. Um, it sort of talks about all different aspects, uh, part of it being vulnerability, part of it being shame, um, and just sort of allowing yourself to um, tackle some of these emotional hurdles that I think a lot of us deal with, but sometimes uh, cover up because it is the easier choice to do. Mm-hmm. Um, the next question is, is there any quote or mantra you live your life by? Um, I'm going to go back to the previous question, John, really quick and say sure. that it's thinking fast and slow. I've been working on okay, blank, gotcha. I, blank. I did finish thinking fast and slow is one that, man, it's just heavy and it's not the, the, <laughs> the best book. It's not the best book to read uh, when you're like lying in bed at night trying to fall asleep. So anyways, okay. uh, moving forward. Um, yeah, so quote to live by, um, there is uh, an Abraham Lincoln quote that I really like that I saw um, a while ago now, but I actually just came up, I revisited it um, a few months ago. Every person's happiness is their own responsibility. Uh, and I really like that because, you know, obviously it's, he's not saying shouldn't try to make other people happy or, um, you know, don't bring joy to others. He's talking about yourself. So ultimately the decisions that you make and um, kind of the, the choices that you make uh, if they're not contributing to your, your own happiness, well, then that that's on you. That's your responsibility. You have your choice. Right. Um, so I, I think that's a, that's a powerful message. And in the time when, you know, during a pandemic, it's really easy to, to be unhappy um, about a lot of different things. What are the things that bring you joy and bring you happiness? Well, you're responsible for finding and seeking out more of those things. Yeah, I think a lot of times, and like you said, people look to blame other people or other things before they look within. Um, mm-hmm. That kind of goes back to what Tim was saying too about just control what you can control. So I like that a lot. Um, how about you, Tim? Uh, I remember talking to my mom one time and she said, if you can make a positive impact on a single person's life during your lifetime, then you've been a success. Um, and I've really tried to take that to heart, especially from an academia standpoint now. Um, it's amazing how small things can influence somebody's life to such a huge extent. Um, Mm -hmm. I had one student one time, I I made a comment on their exam and I said something to the extent of, um, this is the work I've known you've been capable of. And I wrote that when they were a freshman, they came and talked to me as a senior and said, that was the catalyst that wanted them to go to med school. 
And that was what forced them to change their study habits at that point in time. And I was like sitting there, I was like, son of a gun, like literally it was one comment. I could have been doing this this entire time. And so think about the different small moments throughout your day. And if you can make one impact on a person, you don't know what that's going to do. Um, and sort of that butterfly effect, if you would, and just sort of cause a rippling um, to influence other people as well. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, next, our last question, signature question of the show. Tim Reynolds, Brian Gusky, what is your what are your favorite snacks? This was really tough because I tried to narrow it down to one. Uh, big snacker. Have, yeah, no, I love, I, yeah, I love, <laughs> love snacking. And I have various that honestly came to mind and I, cause I don't really have a standout one. It's like uh-huh. not good with those questions of like, what's your favorite food either? Cause I like so many different things. Uh, <laughs> Benitos. I don't know if you've ever seen these in the grocery store. They're Benitos. No cheese they're essentially like cheese puffs but they're made with uh either black bean or like some other okay. kind of bean so they have a healthy twist on them but uh-huh. man they are really good i grew up loving cheetos and since having kicked that uh that addiction uh these, okay. have really fill, these have really filled that void and yeah i mean i'm a big chip guy so uh benito's definitely so do you, can you dip them in anything or what's you can what's totally the... dip them in whatever you want it's like dipping a cheeto and and okay know, whatever I... dip dip hummus yogurt whatever you know okay your, it sounds like a very bag. very versatile snack and it's a very you, versatile snack and how do you how do you spell that uh benito's b-e-a-n uh oh. i believe it's i-i-t-o-s bean beanitos bean yeah sorry yeah he's trying to disguise the bean the nettos yeah they're they're french Okay. Um, but yeah, no, that sounds like a great snack. I appreciate, um, this one's a little bit more unique than some of my previous guests. I know a lot of people try to hide behind a snack they don't love, but, um, Brian, I appreciate you coming out and just telling me (laughs) Benito's is it. So thank you. All right, Tim, what do you got for me? Uh, I'm probably a smart food cheddar popcorn fan. That's like a, um, a guilty pleasure i could i could crush a, a bag of that mm-hmm. if i had access to it but it's a kind of like catch 22 because then all this uh the cheddar ends up on your on your fingers and so it's like not the most optimal snack and be productive food because then you just mess up everything that you're working on so sorry that's you the best the- part though on the fingers man that's what yeah, you, man, get, you get that, uh, that extra lick, right oh yeah, yeah. So are you eating this popcorn while you're watching Netflix and grading or when's the, <laughs> That's when's the so to, all, to all my students that are listening to this and wonder why their papers come back with slight smudges on them, there's a pretty good chance that that's why. So. All right. That's all the questions I have for you guys. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Where can people find you? Yeah. So if uh, you want to check us out, um, they can check out our website, moversandmentors.com. That has links to all our social media. Um, we're pretty active on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, recommend that if you do have any questions, please reach out to us. We always appreciate hearing from our, uh, from our readers. Um, and we'll be able to give John our uh, Instagram and Twitter handles also to our personal pages if you have questions there as well. Anything else to add, Brian? No, no, they can find us there. Shoot us an email. Um, our personal emails are somewhere on there, I believe, um, but we can send those to you, John, if you have personal, uh, more personal questions about, you know, any of our kind of career experiences or, or tracks up until that, this point. Yeah. But um, as Tim said, feel free to give us feedback uh, on the book. We love hearing from, from people that have gotten it and 
uh, are reading it. Uh, we really enjoy that. So yeah, please uh, don't hesitate to reach out. Absolutely. And thanks again, guys, for coming on and best of luck in 2022. Uh, I'm sure a lot of the readers are going to go out and purchase the book and take a lot of value from it. Awesome, John. Thank you. Appreciate you. Thanks for having us. See you later.